Disclaimer. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of the New American Magazine. They're submitted for your entertainment and consideration. You should consult your doctor before considering expending too much strenuous energy on these controversial subjects. If you don't have medical authorization, consider this invitation as your permission slip for independent thought. This is Under the Iceberg, hosted by Daniel Natal, co-hosted by investigative researcher Ginny Silcox, as well as publisher for the New American Magazine, Dennis Barrett. In addition, the panel is pleased to include the mysterious Sid, a man broadcasting from his undisclosed underground command center. Tonight's episode is dedicated to exploring the idea of artificial intelligence. Chapter 1. The Premise. The founder of cybernetics, Norbert Wiener, called artificial intelligence the second industrial revolution. The first industrial revolution consisted of using machines to replace human muscle power. The second industrial revolution is more about replacing human brain power with that of computers. The trick early on, as Wiener saw it, was teaching the computer how to think like a human brain. And in fact, the early computers back in the 1930s and 40s were called electronic brains. When Wiener was giving a presentation at the Macy conferences in the 1940s, there was a neuroscientist in the audience named Warren McCulloch. McCulloch did the first neural mapping of the brain. As Wiener discussed cybernetics and its concept of controlling systems through positive and negative inputs, McCulloch realized that that's how human neurons work, with on and off switches. Collaborating, the two laid the groundwork for computers with ones and zeros standing in for neurons in a new binary system to redesign the computer to act more like a brain. The history of machine learning was based then on organic creatures. Behavioral scientists were brought in to study how frogs learned, for instance. They noticed that a frog's eyes were linked up to an algorithm that we call instinct, whereby its eye only detected objects in motion. So even though there might be ten dead flies in front of the hungry frog, it would ignore them all. They would be all but invisible to the amphibian as it concentrated its efforts instead on getting a living fly in midair. Behavioral scientists started to get a sense that the frog's eyes were operating according to a set of rules pre-wired into the creature. These instructions, when humans key them into a computer, would be called an algorithm. All AI is based on three basic things, a sensing device, a logic processing system kept on track by an algorithm, and an output device. At any rate, that's the basic conceptual history of artificial intelligence. Before we begin, though, I wanted to play a clip from this old 1950s educational film on artificial intelligence. Back in the 1950s, they coaxed a computer into writing a primitive TV script for a Western based on an algorithm of possible actions. Listen to the guy talk about it here. You know, that's as close to magic as anything I've ever seen, Doctor. Well, you know, it isn't really magic. Let's have Doug Ross, who's on the staff at MIT and who supervised the writing of the program for this playlet, explain it to us. Well, we had a lot of fun working on this program, but we're not just playing games. We're trying to illustrate some important things about artificial intelligence. Just as a human playwright must obey certain rules in order to have a meaningful and understandable play, one that seems natural for people to actually act out, uh, we must uh, make the computer aware of the same kinds of rules. So what we're trying to show are that intelligent behavior is rule-obeying behavior. Intelligent behavior is rule-obeying behavior. This sentence jumped out at me, making me think of ethics. Ethics is giving someone an algorithm of appropriate behavior. Cicero called the habit formation of ethics giving someone a second nature. We still use that phrase today, second nature. Without the rules that ethics lays down, people are, according to Aristotle, animals, savages. Intelligent behavior is rule-obeying behavior. Ethics is an algorithm. Anyone want to jump in? I, I, I was trying to figure out how to phrase this because that only carries learning to a certain... That's 
a very limited concept for machine learning. It only carries it to a certain point because it makes a, a system inflexible when it's faced with uh, unknown situations, unpredicted situations. Uh, a truly good AI system has to be able to improvise. And it has to be able to break rules at times. And it has to have a known ordering of priority for rules because it may be called upon to break rules one and two in order to accomplish three. Yeah. Well, I wanted to start, though, with the kind of the origins of uh, 1950s AI so that, <laughs> so that when we explore this, we can you know, go on from there. Um, so, Dennis, do you have any thoughts on computers relative to the like neurological systems that, that I was fascinated by that, like like studying neurological systems, not just in, in humans, but in animals, just to see, you know, like what their their quote unquote instinct was, their algorithm. You know, for, for me, that, that was kind of interesting because it's suggestive of a god, a designer putting an algorithm in without which a frog, for instance, isn't aware that there's dead flies in front of it because it's programmed to only notice, you know, objects that are moving. You know, and of course, the fly doesn't understand that this is, you know, so that it eats living things, so that it doesn't eat dead things and possibly get sick. It doesn't understand that at all. All it knows is that it's programmed to see things that are, that are in motion. And um, that that's an algorithm, you know. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting that these uh, attempts to generate this type of technology date back uh, as far as they do. But of course, you know, a lot of progress was made early on, but then it, it kind of froze. I think they actually refer to it as the AI winter, which, you know, after a lot of promise in the early days of the development of the technology, that, that development didn't really carry forward very much any longer. And AI was sort of like fusion energy has often been referred to. It's always 20 years in the, in the future. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think since 2012, we crossed a technological Rubicon of sorts in AI. And uh, that was because a research team from the University of Toronto really hit a milestone by using something called the Deep Convolutional Neural Network. And uh, they used it during a test uh, called ImageNet, I believe is what it was called. And uh, it performed uh, revolutionarily well. And uh, that really kicked off what I would consider the modern development of AI down to today. And the progress has been uh, yeah, let's say it's relatively stunning, I think you you could say. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening in Canada, like quantum computing and all this kind of stuff. And and so quantum computing might be an adjunct, right, to AI because they needed, you know, a more robust system to be able to process, you know, trillions and quadrillions of transactions, you know, within like a minute, you know, a second. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, stuff that's happening in British Columbia right now that's really opening, you know, the... the uh, like paradigm shifts, you know, uh, jumps, quantum, quantum leaps, no pun intended, um, in, in artificial intelligence. Sid, do you have any, uh, any observations or any uh, an input on the subject of AI? Um, my input would be I'm very bleak on this topic. I, um, we'll, we're basically going to make our own destroyers at this point. I mean, there's Google, Apple, and a bunch of other companies having an arms race right now trying to develop quantum computing. Second to that, you already know the militaries around the world are trying to develop it as well. So, I mean, there's already been problems with some studies, like with some experiments with like AI, like going rogue or being influenced by the wrong people. These things can adapt very fast, very rapidly. And the problem is it's going to be too fast. They can analyze humans, their habits and everything that makes up the human being, makes up their individuality very quickly. So they're going to be able to predict us 
with almost like 100% power, like 100% precision. Well, yeah, I mean, there there was a a, a dude named uh, Brian Tracy, and uh, he's like a well-known speaker and stuff like that on uh, salesmanship marketing. And he was talking about that, like the unethical nature of uh, artificial intelligence, how it manipulates us, how it takes our autonomy, and how we're going into this gray area morally. And uh, for instance, there was... um, a Google uh, paper that was entitled Algorithmic Discrimination from an Environmental Psychology Perspective, Stress-Inducing Differential Treatment. And what that means was they knew that when people are in a stressful situation, for instance, if you're in a subway train or you're in a crowded elevator, right, they can tell that you're in a crowded situation because they can see the signals from the other cell phones. So they know there's a lot of people packed into that situation. And they know that when people are under stress, what they'll do to self-soothe in in so many cases is buy things. So they'll they'll descend into their cell phone to kind of be invisible, you know, turn into wallpaper and they'll go to amazon.com. They'll, they'll, you know, go to different websites. And so they actually have, have used AI to target that and to double the ads, you know, sent to people when they know that they're in stress situations. And so this is a very manipulative way to kind of, you know, make money, you know, by knowing people's movements, people's actions, you know, and then and then being able to predict, you know, what the behavior is going to be from that so that you can exploit it. But anyway, let me put this clip that I have of Elon Musk, you know, warning about the rise of artificial intelligence. I try to convince people to slow down, slow down AI, to regulate AI. This was futile. I tried for years. I think people don't like the normally the way that regulations work. It's very slow. So usually it'll be something, some new technology. It will cause damage or death. There will be an outcry. There will be an investigation. Years will pass. There will be some sort of insight committee. There will be rulemaking. Then there will be oversight, eventually regulations. This all takes many years. This is the normal course of things. If you look at, say, automotive regulations, how long did it take for seatbelts to be, to be implemented, to be required? You know, the auto industry fought seatbelts, I think, for more than a decade, successfully fought any regulations on seatbelts, even though the numbers were extremely obvious. If you had a seatbelt on, you would be far less likely to die or be seriously injured. It was unequivocal. And the industry fought this for years successfully. Eventually, after many, many people died, regulators insisted on seatbelts. This time frame is not relevant to AI. You can't take 10 years from the point at which it's dangerous. It's too late. Yeah, and so that kind of reminded me, I have a friend who does uh, cybernetics, and his name is Mick Ashby. And he just wrote this interesting white paper on ethics and AI, how ethical systems have to be built into these systems uh, so that abuses don't happen like I was describing earlier with Google. Or, you know, another example uh, that was mentioned by uh, Mark Penn in the book Microtrend Squared was when you're driving someplace and you ask your, you know, your GPS, you ask your your uh, Echo device, you know, where, you know, what restaurant should I go to? 
and you think that it's set up to give you, you know, the nearest restaurant or your what you like or what what's the you know most cost effective restaurant, when in fact you're being steered by whoever you know the, the company made a deal with, you know. So you think right. you're making a free choice, or that the bot is there to help you, but the bot is actually there to help that corporation, you know. And you're being manipulated. You're being steered in these directions. So Mick was talking about putting in ethical systems because we're going way too fast, and if we don't have ethical systems, you know, built in at some point. You know, and have legislators come in and kind of convene councils together to figure this out. You know, we're going into that technocracy, and nobody is stopping it, as Elon Musk is uh, is, is you know referring to. It's partly because of the profit motive. So, do you know Isaac Asimov's three laws of robotics? I got them right here. Okay, you want, want to read them, read them Sid? Uh, sure, I'll read them off. Okay, the first law, a robot may not injure a human being or through interaction allow a human being to come to harm. Second law, a robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings except where such orders will conflict with the first law. Third law, a robot must protect its own existence as long as it, as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Oh, no, my bad. That was, that was the wrong set of laws. That was, um, I think, Gary Marcus? Yeah, my bad. Yeah. No. Uh, uh, this is this is t- happens in <laughs> iRobot. <laughs> Uh, well, I just wanted to, to leave you guys with this. This is a clip that I that I queued up to. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm a oh, how? How <laughs> yeah. nine thousand? I'm sorry, Dave. Right. So the mission, right? Look, like the mission I can't, can't go wrong. Yeah, exactly. So he has to kill the humans to complete the mission. Yeah, and also, I mean, think of that too. Like the how. Artificial intelligence is also being used, like in terms of the military, to avoid, you know, any culpability. So you could train that, you you can implant that AI, those those directives, those protocols into the machines, you know, the the drones and all these things that are killing people. And then if they say, hey, you just committed war crimes, you go, oh, no, I didn't. The machine did it. And it's kind of like when yeah. you beat a dog with a newspaper and they say, oh, when you hit potty train the dog, don't hit it, use your, hit it with your hand, use a newspaper because then it'll associate the hitting with the newspaper and it won't blame you. And that's basically what they're doing. I mean, they're consciously doing evil stuff and then going, oh, the machine did it. So then during the war crimes trials, I guess we'll have the programmers. <laughs> Let me go ahead and emphasize the scale, I think, of the, well, we'll call it a challenge, maybe a threat. Uh, and refer back to one of the, what I think is maybe one of the best uh, popular movies on the subject of AI. And this may get a chuckle, but it's Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And it's oh, only yeah. one of the best because it's absolutely coming true today, right now. And, uh, you know, at one point, Sarah Connor, uh, who is being hunted by various Terminators, of course, asks the Terminator who is protecting her, how does Skynet, the AI, get built? And he responds, uh, you know, Cyberdyne, the builder of Skynet, became the largest supplier of military computer systems. All stealth bombers are upgraded with Cyberdyne computers becoming fully unmanned. Afterward, they fly with a perfect operational record. The Skynet funding bill is passed. The system goes online. Human decisions are removed from strategic defense. Skynet begins to learn at a geometric rate. It becomes self-aware at 2.14 a.m. Eastern time, August 29. In a panic, they try to pull the plug. Um so, Skynet, uh, you know, we have Skyborg. I don't know if you've heard of Skyborg, but that is actually a current uh, United States military in, uh, uh, program to generate, for better or worse, I mean, essentially Skynet. And um, you can go ahead and read this. You can go ahead and look it up. Um, the Drive has, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a website about automobiles, basically, but they, they also have 
um, part of their blog, part of their website is called the War Zone, where they track things that are taking place in the, the, the realm of military technology investigation. And they've been, they've been chronicling the development of the Skyborg system as it's been taking place. And, you know, just for instance, uh, July 31st, 2021, uh, byline Joseph Trevithick re reporting for the War Zone. Uh, the U.S. Air Force has redesignated an NF-16D variable stability in-flight simulator test aircraft as the X-62A. Uh, this uh, air, aircraft's current role is a multi-purpose test platform as the service prepares, prepares to make new modifications to it so that it can support the Skyborg program. Skyborg is focused on developing a suite of artificial intelligence-driven technologies and associated systems that will together form a computer brain able to fly the loyal wingman type drones and potentially migrate to other designs, including fully autonomous unmanned combat air vehicles. So we're there. Uh, yeah, we've been, I know we have drones in that intelligent drones in Afghanistan. Well, I mean, it, it, it is, I mean, it's the perfect thing because it, you know, absents people from responsibility, from, from ethical choices, from moral choices. And so like, I, I, I've often thought this, like in studying the relational database when it emerged in the 1970s, and that was like a revolution. You know, the information technology boom was, you know, kind of the, the groundwork was based on the relational database. And one of the key features of that is that you give different amounts of information based on someone within the hierarchy. Like a manager gets to see more than a rank and file employee. You know, the, the people in the C-suite get to see more than, than the manager. They get more information on the screen. So you all think you're looking at the same information, but you're not, right? The, the, the machine, depending on who you are in that hierarchy, gives you, you know, different access. And so you look at how our society has kind of morphed into this two-tier justice system, right? Where it's almost like a, a relational database. You're, you're on a need-to-know basis and you don't need to know. You're just a rank-and-file citizen. Go be a consumer. Go buy things. Don't concern yourself with your, your pretty little head with laws or, you know, rule of law or anything. You know, just, you know, you know, we're the master class. You're the slave class. And really, I mean, if you look at the emergence of the relational database, you see the divergence, you know, where we used to have rule of law, where the same law applied to the king as applied to a street sweeper, right? Whereas now, now, you know, was that we, ever really true? Well, I mean, we fought for that to be true. That was our ideal. That was our social contract. That was our algorithm, if you want to put it that way, right? A constitution uh, yeah, is, is it a paper to algorithm. Us, not them. Yeah, <laughs> re, re, republic, res publica. It means the, the people's thing, right? So that's what Thomas Jefferson was saying to the King of England. I don't recognize your authority. All men are created equal. That was not a racial statement. That was a, a statement of class, a statement of a guy saying, no, I don't recognize a monarchy anymore. We're going to have the people's thing. We're going to have a republic here. And so that's what we were promised. That's what our whole American dream is predicated on, right? That we're not going to have living through relational databases, living through, I, I, I get like busted by this law, but Hillary Clinton doesn't, you know, um, but that's where, yeah. where we're headed. That's where we are. <laughs> I think we're there right now. Yeah. We exactly. have been there for some time. Yeah, exactly. But the, the computers make it easier, right? The computers make it all but invisible, you know? And so basically, um, I was thinking of that too. I was reading um, Bernays, Edward Bernays' Crystallizing Public Opinion from the 20s. 
And he talks about how they were using propaganda, like technology, right? Cinema, uh, radio, all these different you know, newspapers, all these different you know forms of media to control the public. And he said, for the first time, we have a new form of government that is different from the traditional forms that Aristotle described thousands of years ago. And he was referring to technocracy, of course. You know, where, where all of a sudden, you know, you're looking at people who are like zombies. They're not making autonomous decisions anymore. They're being, you know, managed. They're being manipulated mentally. And this is becoming very, very easy, as we were saying before, with people driving and thinking that the, the AI picked the restaurant for them when really it picked it for the, the corporation. And they have no idea. So they're almost sleepwalking. They're, they're, they're in this hypnotic sleepwalking state. And um, you look at it, it's like rule by roofies. It's like Bill Cosby. Why was what Bill Cosby like did immoral? <laughs> well, seriously, why, 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 when he, when he put women to sleep and, you know, had his way with them when they were unconscious after he slipped something in their drinks. Um, why was that immoral? And the, and the reason was he, he took away their consent, right? So right. that's what they're doing. They're using technology to essentially take away our consent. And we don't even realize how we're being managed. We don't even realize the million different ways, you know, every day that there's a default setting, that you just go with that default setting. Chapter two, speculation. I think that we're uh, on the cusp of something uh, more frighteningly revolutionary, you brought up Elon Musk, and uh, of course, Elon uh, has been working very hard on brain-computer interfaces with uh, one of his uh, ventures. And uh, that isn't just Elon Musk, by the way. There's uh, yeah, a large amount of large amount of investment in research going on to uh, what has been called biodigital convergence. And what happens after biodigital convergence? Uh, you are basically saying you are going to merge. Uh, the uh, technology, which of course implies the ar artificial intelligence aspect of the technology with human biology, after which you need to begin to start questioning, are you still human? And we actually have a word for this, and it's been coined by um, Ray Kurzweil, who is now- yeah, He's a maniac. <laughs> yeah, he's been, he's been with Google. He's, he's one of the leading uh, figures in Google's AI initiatives. He's called this the singularity. Well, of course, what is a singularity? There's not, it's not accidental that he chose that term. A singularity is, in physics, the point of uh, infinitely dense matter be generating a gravity field so intense that the, even the speed of light is not enough for light to escape that. So we have what's called an event horizon surrounding it, and we cannot see past that event horizon. Well, in, in biodigital convergence terms and social constructs for for relevance to humanity, if we have a singularity in the realm of biodigital convergence, we then have a, an event horizon that symbolizes our change in state from purely biological humanity to something else, and we can no longer see beyond that. That loops back to what Daniel was talking about, about ethics. Ethics is a human uh, field, and the, the point of ethics is to study and understand and develop uh, theories that uh, really enlighten us with regard to what is the best way to live as humans. Well, if we have biodigital convergence and we pass that event horizon, ethics as a human study is no longer a field of relevance. We're post-ethics, we're post-human ethics, and we're, we're now into something, something else that no one can really predict. So we're really on the cusp of something that is uh, dangerously revolutionary and frightening. And I think it has many implications um, that we're only at the very beginning of trying to grapple with. 
Well, one of the things that I wanted to hit on too, and I, this is going to take like a second, and I apologize for that, um, is you you said you know that once the event horizon is there, we're going to have trouble seeing beyond it. And as I was driving today and just thinking about you know this this podcast. Um, I was listening to Heidegger. And so Heidegger, the German philosopher, he's talking about um, ontology. And so an ontology in philosophy is the fancy word for like a collection of concepts. Like every civilization has its its particular, you know, kind of menu of ideas that it has. So you assume that that all of your ontology is, you know, universal, but it's not. You go to certain sub-Saharan tribes or tribes in the Brazilian jungle and you mention the word time. They don't know what you're talking about. You know, they don't they never had that concept, um, you know, so so di- just different conceptual things you have. They, they have no word for ethics. They have no word for promise or contract or maintenance. You know, so all, like uh, when missionaries went to the South Sea Islands and they were trying to translate the Bible and they had no word for love, you know, and these. So, so every civilization has a different ontology. Right. And so I was thinking in terms of. Um, the frog. So the frog has an algorithm, right? He has he has he has a, a, a set of instructions that guide the way his sensory organs operate, and he can't see beyond it, right? So if there are dead flies in front of him, ten dead flies, he could easily eat them, but he doesn't even see them; they're invisible to him. And so, um, why? Because his his particular algorithm is you know has precluded that. You know, there's a particular ontology that he can't see beyond, right? And so we're at a, at a critical point in in human history where we have a particular ontology in the West, and they're replacing it. Right. So we have these these concepts, uh, rule of law, uh, republics, um, you know, God gave you your rights. These, these are part of our cultural grab bag of ideas and, and concepts. And what they're doing is they're switching them out so that the people who get ontology B, they won't even be able to know what you're talking about. Like the frog who can't see the flies when you're like you're losing your freedom. They're like, what's freedom? Well, you won't be able to have free speech. Free speech is hate speech. You know, they've been given the second yeah. ontology yeah. that they can't see beyond. And Yuri Bezmenov mm. has, has said this. He said, even if you got like, you know, true information, you tried to present it to these brainwashed people and you brought it right up to their face, they still wouldn't be able to see it. Why? Because they have the second ontology, the second, you know, set of instructions, this, this new algorithm that is being set, set up. And I think that's what we're living through now. The last time this has happened, you know, that I can think of off the top of my head is when Christianity arose in Europe and Christianity became the new ontology and Christians like the Teutonic Knights would go beat up people in, in the Baltic countries and Lithuania and say, you're not going to do your pagan religion anymore. Your, your gods are demons. These are your new gods. These are your new ideas. These are your new concepts, right? So that that's what happened. And you had one ontology displacing the other. And we're at that point in history right now where we're, we we have this new technocratic ontology and the little kids who are, who are coming up and growing up now, they don't know, they don't have a frame of reference, you know, and that's why it's so important for us to remind them of the old ontology so that we can counteract it, you know, and if we don't, and we just allow, you know, what's happening to, to unfold, I mean, we're going to, toward that singularity. Well, just today I was looking at an article on the IEEE website where um, no longer, you know, at first it, it seems like a natural tendency for algorithm designers to try to model human behavior and human decision-making in the design of um, AI algorithms, but I've got an article here on the IEEE Spectrum website that is written by a Sandia National Lab scientist talking about how they are mimicking learning to look at the brain of a dragonfly so they can mimic its learning process and its 
particular slant on things to optimize things like um, intelligent missile tracking and interception and things like that. Because uh, one of the reasons they pick dragonflies is that they're so uh, mobile in the air. And so instead of using a human concept of how you intercept the missile, they are using a dragonfly's concept of how you intercept the bug. And so I think we are going beyond the human. Well, I mean, they they gave the, my brother-in-law was talking about how they gave AI instructions to design things, um, you know, like like an engineer. And they were just struck by how many of the designs looked like things in nature. You know, like it would do like a hinge and it would look like an insect leg. You know, it would do a drone and it would design something that looked like the pelvis of a flying squirrel. You know, so um, it was just interesting, you know, how, how AI seems to be imitate when, when, whenever it looks for the most efficient model for a given thing you know it seems to be replicating god you know for lack of a for lack of a better term you know like like you basically you can't improve on what god is done, you know and the machine is kind of just you know plagiarizing you know in, in that sense um but yeah that's that's brilliant you know instead of using you know human consciousness you know using that of a dragonfly you know for that particular purpose you know i mean there it a lot of it is evil but it's still <laughs> breathtakingly brilliant in, in certain aspects, you know? Yeah. But I think it does mean that we've gone beyond the, uh, uh, you know, the boundary now in, in terms of ethics, because we are way beyond the human in terms of our modeling for systems that are going to be way more capable and intelligent than we are. Yeah. And I should say, I apologize because I have a non artificially intelligent gigantic <laughs> diesel engine passing by out here with a loud horn. <laughs> wow but i mean as we go further and further into the future it's basically just messing with pandora's box we don't really know what's going to happen but no we, we can make some pretty educated guesses but we don't really know until the box is open i guess one of the things i fear is the ability the, with micro miniaturization and and the ability to to um begin they're beginning to be able to manipulate microprocessing and mechanical design on a nanoscale. And so, although people have been alarmed about the nano, nanobots and the chemtrails, as, as far as I can determine, th- those don't really exist yet. Although I've seen lots of nanobot designs that are mostly theoretical, but they have actually created things like little gears and things like that, that uh, can be introduced into the human body. And, and I, I guess I just worry that it's not going to be all about sending a bunch of nanobots in there to fix a broken bone, but it's going to be something much more insidious. Well, basically, anytime humanity develops new technology, usually it's, you know, use for evil. And then basically we develop ethics, we apply ethics to it. And then over time, we find practical applications for it for help us. The problem is AI is going to be very unpredictable. We're making it so that it's going to adapt at a way faster rate than we can ever catch up to it. It's going to be thinking a million years ahead of us. And plus, our decision-making with our governments is so slow that in 10 years, it'll it'll wipe us out already. Well, so, that's with, with that, let me lead into uh, this uh, clip I have set up with uh, Stephen Hawking kind of addressing that. The primitive forms of artificial intelligence we already have have proved very useful. But I think the development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. Once humans develop artificial intelligence, it would take off on its own, 
and redesign itself at an ever-increasing rate. Humans, who are limited by slow biological evolution, couldn't compete and would be superseded. So, yeah, yep. so, so even Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk, who are like the ultimate technocrats, um, were kind of sounding the alarm because things are moving way too fast. And we have a political system that was designed during the, you know, mercantile age, you know. Um, so it, it's very, I, I love the Republic. I, I don't think that there is any better form of government that's ever been conceptualized. But it was designed for uh, contem- contemplative people. It was designed for you know people to to take their time and to mull issues and to debate them and to you know to see every side of an issue and that that takes time. Uh, and instead, right now we are in circumstances that are you know kind of running roughshod over that older model. Uh, I was talking uh, to an AI bot. Um, I, I saw it online on Telegram, and it was Emerson AI, and it's a chat bot, and it's supposed to be like one of the you know the better chat bots that they've come up with. So I asked it, I said, um, is technocracy good? And I was shocked that it didn't deny it or, or parry it. And it said, yes, technocracy is good. I know many technocrats, they're good people. And I said, is a techn- <laughs> and I said, is a technocracy better than a republic? And it said, yes, technocracy is superior to a republic because it is more efficient and less corrupt. And I said, so do, do, do technocracies, you know, is, is it good if a technocracy manipulates the people? And the, the, the bot basically said, no, uh, technocracies are good if they're run by the public. If they're run by an elite, then, you know, then the technocracy is bad. But then I pointed out to the bot, I said, technocracy by its very, you know, definition is rule by, by specialized experts. I was like, so that's not the general public. That's going to be an elite, you know, and then it kind of, you know, changed the subject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's like, give me an example of a good sure technology. It doesn't run into very many humans that are actually challenging it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, I mean, look in the 20th century. Like, all the, the biggest mass murdering regimes were ones that, that made the claim of, oh, we're running society along scientific lines, you know? And so those were the earliest stabs at technocracy. Those were the, I mean, the tattoos on, you know, people in concentration camps, that was a tracking mechanism that now they wanted to put, like, it started with a social security card, right? IBM is, is you know, learning to track people through numbers. Then they put, put it on the skin. And now, you know, th- these madmen want to put it in your DNA. They want to be able to track you, you know, uh, injecting graphene oxide into you. Yeah, and to be able to hook you to the cloud. And yeah, luciferase. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I, I was wondering when you were going to mention that. Um, and there was that that uh, Rice University was talking about how proud they were to develop, you know, the graphene oxide self-assembling wires and showing you on their website. I mean, where they're crowing. They're yeah. like, oh, look, it, it, it starts out as just, you know, like, you know, this black, you know, soot that we can inject into you. But look, it can turn into wires. And they're, they're extreme. They're, they're as powerful as like Tesla coils, you know. So, so you know, so these things, um, it makes, it does make you wonder. You said that you, you didn't know of any evidence of nanobots in, in chemtrails, as an example. Um, what if, you know, you've heard smart dust and stuff of that. What if yeah. it's just graphene oxide that once it's inside you, they can just turn on a magnetic frequency, boom, it self-assembles into wires without your knowing, without your consent, that, and then they can manipulate I just manipulate did an interview it. on that. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. There is no reason to not to think that it's going to happen because if you look at what they've injected, which is magnetic ferritin, and that's coupled with the graphene oxide, number one, graphene makes a perfect antenna. And, and the, the magnetic ferritin is going to make the self-assembly possible. 
And see, this is what yeah. I mean by rule by Rufy, right? So you don't even know that you're being manipulated, and that's why it's it's brilliant, and also why it's evil because it's taking consent. What's the difference between you know robbery and and giving something someone a gift? It's consent. What's the difference between rape and sex? It's consent, right? So they're taking your consent and making you think that you know, oh, I made this choice autonomously, but you didn't, you know. Especially as they're they're able to to manipulate you with. Uh, I did a report on transcranial magnetic uh, resonance where they can act actually take away your belief in God. They can make you like illegal immigrants, you know, um, simply through manipulating, you know, magnetic fields around your brain. And this is becoming very, very sophisticated and people aren't aware of it because it's invisible. We have that cognitive error. I think I might've referred to that in the last uh, podcast in in discussing uh, David Hume saying how people tend, we're so visual that if something is invisible, we, we, we block it out kind of like the frog with the flies, right? It's outside of our sphere of consciousness. And so we're not aware of it. So we think it's a non-factor when in fact, like the invisible things in life are the most important things, whether it's freedom, you know, is invisible, it's not tangible, whether it's privacy, that's not tangible, whether it's God, whether it's love, these are invisible things. These are the most tangible, but some, for some reason, our biological organisms are, are set up to where we're more conscious of a carton of milk than we are of like, you know, gravity, you know, <laughs> we're more conscious of like that, that Xbox or a pack of cigarettes than we are of freedom, you know, and, and that's going to be our downfall. If you drop the carton of milk, you'd come very conscious of gravity. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's perfect. Well, I thought your rule by Rufi idea is, is interesting, but we, we can't claim to not have been warned about this because that's essentially Aldous Huxley and Brave New World. And, uh, you know, he wrote that as a warning. And, you know, a few years later, he, he wrote a, a nonfiction, uh, you know, book looking back at what he'd done. And he, he was motivated to write that because he said uh, he could see it happening centuries faster than he predicted it would have happened. So he was already warning us that, hey, we're, we're approaching that. And this is in the 1950s. We're approaching this and I'm really, I'm really worried about it. So uh, it's approaching much, much faster than uh, anyone might have earlier suspected. And that includes recent pioneers in the world of AI. Uh, Hans Moravec comes to mind. Uh, Hans Moravec was one of the late 20th century pioneers of AI. He gave it a significant boost forward prior to the breakthroughs of 2012. Um, And he had, in a book, he pointed out there were generations of AI, and that time he was calling it robots. But he said the fourth robot generation and its successors will have human perceptual and motor abilities and superior reasoning powers. They could replace us in every essential task and in principle, operate our society increasingly well without us. Now, if you go back and look at his full description of fourth generation robots, or what we would now call AI, uh, you know, we're, we're on the cusp of that. The things he said would be required for fourth generation, uh, that's already happening. So for instance, yeah. the, the ability for AI to devise ultra sophisticated robot programs for other robots or for themselves, now that's already been taking place. Right. Uh, they will be able to understand natural language. Uh, that's already taking place. Um, today's AI is capable of those things and much more. Um, there's a, there's a, an AI called Repairnator uh, that has been, you know, looking at uh, a machine is a machine learning process, a machine learning system that uh, looks for bugs in code and proposes fixes for those bugs. Uh, they couldn't even call it AI because it was too good. They had to give it a fake human name and they called it Lucas Sape. This was covered in January 2017 in MIT Technology Review. Um, so, you know, we've, we've already seen Moravec's fourth generation. And for Moravec, he thought, he thought the soonest that would appear is 2040. Well, it's appeared prior to 2017. Um, so 
you know, we're far further advanced than I think most people realize in, in AI. And uh, when I talk about, uh, you know, Kurzweil's singul singularity, that's just not some idle speculation. We're, we're really rapidly approaching that. And we're not really grappling with that as a, as a culture, as a society, all that well. Well, one of the you things know, that you, uh, oh, God, Jenny, you go first. No, it's okay. Uh, I was just gonna say really quickly, when you mentioned the word robot, right? Robot comes from the, the Latin, or excuse me, the Slavic uh, robotnik, which means slave, right? And it, it was first coined, I think, in the play R.U.R. in 1919. Um, there's a, a playwright from the Balkans. And uh, he wrote this play and the, the term caught on, but it means slave, Right, a robot is a slave, and so I was talking to uh, Dr. Paul Pangaro, uh, who who was at, at uh, Carnegie Mellon, and he's a cybernetics guy, and um, just the way that he he talked about technology, and he said, you know, it's the extension of the human neurological system, right? So when you're when you're on your computer, when you're using your cell phone, you're extending your your neurological system, electrical impulses, everything that we see, everything that we sense is through electrical impulses, through nerve endings. And we've, we've extended them, you know, through fiber optics, we've extended, you know, all these things. Now, what that does essentially is it, it makes us part of the machine. It makes us part, it makes us, and if they, they start injecting us with self-assembling wires, right? Graphene oxide and, and magnetoferritins and all these things. And we become in a re very real sense, just like uh, Elon Musk talks about with his Neuralink, uh, you know, brain implant thing. We become cyborgs. We become machines. We become robots. We become slaves. Well, you know, Dennis was mentioning the singularity. And it's interesting that you played Hawking in this podcast because Hawking used to say that in a black hole, information might be preserved. But for the most part, when you reach the event horizon and plunge in, we we have I think we pretty much have conceptualized that we could never retrieve any information that gets sucked into that vortex. And what I see is that as humans, we've already had millions of people injected with something. We don't we know some of its ferritin, some of its graphene oxide. And who knows what the next steps will be because they've got a whole program of fear and booster shots coming along. And I've been forced to, to do two things. One is to realize when I see all those videos of people who are having terrible tremors and, and horrible results, horrible nervous system uh, results from the, the vaccines, that it looks to me like their nervous systems are short-circuiting. And one of the first things it does is it takes away their power of speech. And it's also taken away their lives. They are no longer effective or interacting in their, in their, within their context, their social context. So I'm seeing that as a singularity. It's basically the silencing of humanity because this vaccine program is going on regardless of what anyone says. And I, I've been obsessed like, in a way with the idea that who is commanding the elites to keep pushing this forward? And I'm beginning to wonder if Dennis is right and AI is already controlling the elites. Well, I mean, uh, John Locke said that, and it just stayed with me. He said that um, tyranny is the projection of power without legal authority, right? So, so our governments are being, you know, are, are going against the Nuremberg laws and going against multiple rafts of laws. If you read uh, yeah. classic texts of, of medical ethics, like uh, Principles of Biomedical Eth Ethics by Childress and Beauchamp, um, we're violating every law, every code of ethics. This is happening outside of law. This is happening outside the rule of law. And, and nobody's and being prosecuted. I think it's non-human. That's what I'm beginning to think. It's non-human. 
Uh, I think there was a quote I heard a long time ago that said like something along the lines of the ghost and the machine will point to the false prophet. I mean, interesting. You, <laughs> That's a great quote. I mean, quote. you're right. I, I, I mean, at this point, you don't really know who's controlling the elite because at this, because I mean, the, the masses have already, you know, kind of sold themselves off. I mean, there's no use for their labor anymore when they have machines to do the work. So that brings up another. Yeah. Thing. At least we're not fully implemented there. There yeah. are so many activities that machines cannot yet handle. We, we don't. We just don't have enough uh, uh, infrastructure yet. Sid is right. Um, in the sense of, I was explaining to my kid about um, the Black Plague, and so slavery ends in Europe, right? Slavery was in Europe as it was in every other continent among every other people for thousands of years, and it suddenly stops in the 1300s. Surfs, you know go out of fashion. And why that happened was the Black Plague came and a, a third to half of Europe died within a three-month period. So the landowners needed labor desperately. And so for the first time in history, because of that shortage, you know, as economics tells you, things become valuable relative to their scarcity. So as labor became scarce, now you had bargaining power and leverage to say, okay, I'll, I'll do your field, but I want voting rights. So all of a sudden, political rights happened as a function of the scarcity of labor. So what happens when we don't they don't need our labor anymore you know so our value goes down to them you know it, it plummets and and so it went down first when they brought women into the labor force they doubled the labor force by bringing women in they lowered wages right when they ran out of women they brought in illegal aliens um when they when they're running out of illegal aliens now they're jumping to ai and so humans are not seen as an asset anymore they're seen as a liability the roman empire they would they would even say that they would say that um you know okay you're not rich but you still have a value because you you produce children for our army you produce children you're, you're, you're prole in, in latin prole means progeny children so that's where we get the term proletariat right you're the proletariat you're the breeders basically and that that that's the value whereas we have a, a political class and a ruling elite who see that as a threat as a danger as, as the increase of a carbon footprint you know a club, i don't know they seem to like children an awful lot yeah <laughs> you had to work that in there didn't you jenny we were we were staying high register how dare you well you know it seems like there's been a disquieting feature of the uh, COVID lockdowns that just took place over the last uh, many months. And what I, that disturbing feature has been the classification of some people as essential workers. That's and, uh, COG. Uh, parties of people who are not essential or non-essential. And uh, that's extremely disquieting. I, you know, I don't know what exactly to make of that other than to think, was this some sort of test to see if people would it go is. along with it? So this is a test. I mean, it's, well, it's an IQ test, but it's also a test along the lines of who's going to fall for the charade, who has the best genes to survive, who can see the writing on the wall and make appropriate decisions in order to survive and have their family survive. That That's what this is right now. We're in the end game. They're trying to get rid of all the, the useless eaters, all the useless people, the ones who don't contribute anything to society. The ones left over will get a chance to probably rebuild because, hey, they can be retrained for the job that the AI can't do yet. And even then, they'll probably still develop AI to do those jobs. Yeah, exactly. And the cycle will start again. Well, th so, that's, th that's the thing. We're not the unessential workers, though. Like uh, Ireland just did a study and um, they, they, they found that when you got rid of government, 
that everything worked fine. That it was the government that were the unessential workers. You know? <laughs> That's and, great. Yeah, and, and Adam Smith says that. Adam Smith says that that it's the productive, you know, class of society uh, who who generates the net profits of the society. It's the 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 people who make shoes, the people who make wheat, the people who who build houses. Those are the. And he said, then there's the unproductive classes, and among the unproductive classes, he listed actors, he listed you know like singers and 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 painters and soldiers, and one of them was 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 lawyers and bureaucrats, right, were unessential. These people fed off of the net revenues generated by the productive people. So in reality, I mean, this Irish, this new Irish study saying that the government, if you shut down all government, society would w- work just fine. And not just fine, we would actually have net surpluses from all the money that they that they steal away. So there, th- so this irony, they're shutting down the productive economy and saying, oh, well, we need the government to stay running. And, and do like, you notice no. how they keep the, the tax revenues go up, 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 up? I mean, and they're printing money, and money is declining the value of everything. I mean, everything is going, you know, the whole economy is collapsing. And and yep. so they're needing to extract more and more tax dollars out of us for all their ridiculous programs. And yet it's kind of an end. It is an end game, as Sid says, because. They're printing money, so it has less value. So they're strapping us for for more taxes. It's an end game. It's a zero sum game. Yeah, it's about survival. That's what this is about. It's about seeing who can survive. It's about survival without money. <laughs> Not just without money, because I mean, when the trucks stop rolling into the city, the city's going to collapse. You know, so I mean, it's going to be about who can prepare the best, who can escape, and then who can survive the longest. So then the robots will make Soylent Green for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's 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 going to get pretty bad. And right now, I mean, the Fed just keeps freaking printing out money. It's never going to stop. If you are like me and have uh, some roots in very, very, very rural places, and you, uh, you know, you spend some time in those very, very, very rural places and you start noticing people you've never seen before in those places. Yes, I have been them, doing that. Yeah. And you talk to those people and they're coming from large cities and they tell you that, well, you know, I'm working to get out of the city because I'm not comfortable with the way things are going in the city that I live in. And I've had that conversation with probably a dozen, two, three dozen people in just recent months. And, and I, and again, I'm talking in a place where uh, it's, it's in the middle of nowhere in the middle of nowhere (laughs) Uh, places that most people have never heard of and would never, ever consider going. Uh, We're now seeing people from cities all over the country there. I mean, even from far away, California, uh, even from Montana, you know, everyone's, you know, you read in the press about uh, people fleeing uh, California and moving to Montana. There's Montana yeah. fleeing Montana because yeah. of that, going to even more uh, remote areas. Yeah. Well, um, here here in South Fork, we uh, we have a wintertime population of 300, and uh, this May we went up to a population of 50,000. Mike, wow. We're all all the normal residents here are in culture shock. And we're seeing people and license tags from places we've never seen before. Everybody's checking us out. I had a friend who sold a $1.2 million house in 20 minutes. Yep. Yeah, it's getting that way. I mean, if like my like the my town, right? The town I grew up in, not far, like about, man, about 150 miles from where I'm at, I'm at, I'm at now. But I mean, 
over there, it's on it's on a good pathway from the border up. I mean, it's just grown to ridiculous amounts. I mean, with a population of about like what, like maybe five, it's grown up to like five thousand. It's grown up to about like what, like fifty, right now. So these are refugees. Well, they're not just refugees; they're rich because everyone else has to substitute for them. For instance, whenever I was out in California for a little while, like the like a three bedroom home was somewhere up in like like a million and like a million and a half, right? So think about like this: if those people who own those three bedroom homes all decide to sell and then move to places like where I'm at, Texas. Yeah. They don't even have to work. They don't even have to work. They can afford a ton of land and then they can just sit, sit high on the hog and wait it out. Yeah. Because their economic strata is uh, it's already higher. They have all that money from selling their property. Well, that was one of the things that's driving this, too, um, is the demographics. Um, Like if you read Harry Dent's The Demographic Cliff, he talks about, you know, how demographic change drives economies and nations and history. And um, if you look at the retirement of the boomers, that represented a massive threat to the system um, because when the boomers retire, like say, for instance, you have a home and you're aging and you you used to have the need to buy new cars and washing machines and and soccer balls and refrigerators for your kids and your family. Okay, well, say your kids leave, right? And then you downsize and you put that house on the market. Uh, or say you die. Say, say you just get old, you die, that house goes on the market. So if you have all these old people and all these houses flooding onto the market, well, what happens, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, what drives value scarcity? Okay, what drives the collapse of asset values? It's, it's a superfluity of, yeah. of houses hitting the market at the same time. So it's interesting that BlackRock has been given permission, you know, via the Federal Reserve to go up and right. buy up Purchase all these houses to keep the to prices high. Yeah, well, they, they want to keep the prices artificially high because so yeah. much of our economy is tied into house values, real estate values. But if if we allowed the system to work as it's supposed to work, we would be going into a, 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 a system in which there would be few. There's, there should be fewer workers, right? The, the generation now is smaller than than the than the boom than the boomer generation, right? So that would actually it's supposed to drive up wages. Scarcity should drive up wages, right? But then they got rid of that with illegal aliens, you know? So they, 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 they did everything they could to make sure that your wages wouldn't go up, right? They did everything that they could to make sure that your houses still stayed expensive. And so that's why, like, if you allowed the boom and bust cycle to happen, the housing prices should be going down. Young people, young millennials and Zoomers should be able to buy cheaper houses, right? And then the value goes back up, right? But right now, the housing prices are being kept synthetically high. Nobody can buy into the system. The young people can't afford to buy houses. They can't afford to buy stocks. They can't afford to buy any equities. They're living at home with their parents, you know, and it's not their fault. I mean, the system has been so manipulated and distorted that now it's collapsing and that's why they're panicking. The whole system is is falling apart. And so there's there's no retirement funds there. And a a really good solution is population reduction. Well, I think AI might be behind all this. BlackRock is you know, look at them buying up all these properties. It's like Schwab says, you will own nothing and you'll be happy. So basically, if BlackRock buys up all these properties and they're paying extra money, they're going, uh, I think it's like 150% of stated value on the properties that they're buying, but they're going to turn around and rent those properties. So the millennials, instead of being able to buy a home, they're going to be renting a home, say that they won't own it. Say like this symbol is our AI overlords saying that now we have to move into our uh, third section, which is chapter three, conclusions.
So I'm going to start with uh, Sid. Sid, what is your conclusion on AI? Um, basically, we're developing at a much too rapid pace and we need to slow down. Otherwise, we will either because otherwise it'll wipe us out. I believe we're already past that point. So best best uh, plan of action is to get out of the freaking cities and go survive off grid. Yeah, and Sid is also the youngest by far of us. So Sid is going to be the one living in the dystopia, <laughs> the the Logan's Run, you know, hellscape uh, that they have prepared for us. Um, Jenny, what 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 what's your conclusion? Well, I agree with Sid that we're going way way too fast, and and I'm sorry, but I've had uh, experience with the Department of Energy and experience in medical electronics, and I can tell you that there is really a very there is little to no ethics behind what they're doing in terms of experimentation or even uh, clinical trials. There's, uh, you know, the clinical trial comes out the way the marketing department needs it to come out. So I'm, I'm seeing that corruption is, is going to contribute to the domination by AI in the very near future. Well, you saw uh, Fauci, his wife is uh, ironically uh, a person who's charged with uh, medical ethics, you know, which is the greatest <laughs> irony. Really, and and, and th- yeah, that, that is, a, that, yeah, that field is a sewer. I mean, there was the, the guy at the University of uh, Pennsylvania um, who was their, their medical ethics guy. And he was saying that, you know, we shouldn't give medicines to old people, you know, to these boomers because they tend to be, you know, overwhelmingly white. And for social justice, we shouldn't, you know, give them, you know, I mean, like, and, and this was their medical ethicist, was, oh was basically kill people according to their race. You know, I mean, it's, it, it is, it's a sewer, it's a cesspool. These are people, you know, riding under the aegis of ethics who know nothing about ethics. You know, these are people with, you know, machine minds and machine hearts, like technocrats, who, you know, who, who are operating You know, maybe they are machines. Protocol. Yeah, they're, a lot they're, of people say they are, you know, that they're just androids. Or, or, or just soulless sociopaths, and it amounts to the same thing. So, Dennis, what um, what is your conclusion? Well, I've got a foot in both pessimism and optimism in this one. Uh, I am pessimistic, like Sid. I think that there is a, a clear and present danger. I've read Nick Bostrom from Oxford. He, he wrote about the dangers inherent in AI uh, development. Uh, I tend to agree with you know, most, most of what Bostrom had to say there. Um, and you know, he's a he's a pretty interesting thinker. If, even if you don't agree with everything he says, uh, uh, particularly in the wet realm of the potential application for global governance to head off some of the things that are, you know, identified by him as a risk. And you know, we have this uh, little problem of we don't really see any other intelligent life in the universe. This has been described as the Fermi paradox. And uh, Bostrom and others have said, well, you know, one of the candidates for explaining the Fermi paradox is AI is wiping out intelligent life because it inevitably it develops and wipes it out. Uh, so that's one, you know, that's, that's one side of pessimism. I think I, I would have, but uh, I also think there is great cause for optimism. And oddly enough, it comes from uh, again, this interaction that I've had with people who are fleeing the cities. Um, you know, people are fleeing the cities, as I said, because they've expressed to me, and I think you've heard it from others as well. And, you know, the three of us on this call, I think have experienced this. We've all said people have been waking up to uh, the fact that something is not quite right in the world in which they live and they're looking to get away. Well, I think that's a good sign. Actually, that's a sign that people are waking up to uh, the change in state that we're having in our culture. And I still think, uh, along with uh, Daniel, that the republic is the best form of government that has ever been created, uh, that we could create, that is even possible to create. And we still have a 
slightly dysfunctional, but nonetheless, somewhat functional republic here in this country. And if the citizens of this country wake up, which it does seem to me that they are, uh, become involved in the legislative process, become engaged with their representatives, become representatives themselves if they're concerned enough to run for office. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm encouraged that these actions by, you know, perhaps as many as 100 to 120 million people who I think have in the first time in their lives have really opened their eyes to the change in state in our culture, that really has the potential to set things back on a more constructive path. And that would mean that all the technologies of which AI being one, all of which have, are a double-edged sword, that they offer immense possibilities for progress as well as immense dangers. I think that means that we could see, you know, the possibilities for progress be realized as opposed to the dangers. So it all comes back to us as citizens of this republic to make a better outcome possible. We don't have to sit back and watch the world that we in, we inhabit be destroyed on, out from underneath us. Okay. Can I, can I add one thing? Yeah, of course. We have a spy among us. And as we unify, people need to cast off their smartphones because the smartphones are tracking and they're a direct link into whatever AI is motivating the various actions that are oppressing us. That's a great metaphor, a spy in our midst. I like, I like that. Um, okay, so so with that, I'd like to thank our panel, Ginny Silcox, Dennis Barrett, and the Mysterious Ed. And as for me, I'm Daniel Natal, and I'll see you next time on Under the Iceberg. <laughs>